HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Shoebox. Save time on data entry and get back to the business you love. For more information, visit shoebox.com. That's C-H-O-U-X-B-O-X.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz, coming to you live from Houston at Underbelly. Where'd you say what part of town this is in? Uh, this is Montrose. Okay, and uh, Chef Chris Shepard, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So, most of our audience is based in New York and L.A. What is the current state of Houston dining, and how has it changed in the last four, five, ten years? You're starting to see more of the younger generation actually kind of stepping up and doing their thing and, and not not to say that in the past people were cooking just to, to, to please cook what see what people wanted to see um, now chefs are actually kind of doing what they want to do and it's it's really impressive and you're also starting to see more of the smaller um, like mom and pop places the, all the ethnic places really kind of thriving and, and, and getting bigger and bigger. And I think that has to do with the internet and the ease of being able to travel around the city. Before, you in Houston, if you wanted to find something, you had to have a key map and somebody had to tell you where to go. And now, you know, you, you, know you can go to, to, to Pho Saigon and, and get a good bowl of pho, or you can go to Crawfish and Noodles, but before you had to actually kind of stumble across that or just have somebody with word of mouth told you for so now you're starting to see all of that kind of coming into its own. And can, can you explain how people, like, the difference between what people thought they needed to cook versus what people are cooking now and finding their own voice and identity? Well, you, you see, you know, you've you got a lot of the younger generation that has gone off and cooked in other places and, and coming back and, and, and doing that. And before you were talking about not really, I shouldn't say cooking what they felt like they had to, you, you started to see, like, take Robert Del Grande, for example, at Cafe Annie, who, who kind of created a cuisine. You know, in, in Southwest cuisine, but you know it was that standard and that mold that was there for a long time, and, and you didn't see that real influx of chefs. There was those guys like 
you know, Kathy Annie and, and Marks and, and Tonys and, and Brennan's that were just kind of the norm of everything. And that was where you went. And it still do. Um, but now it's it's all these other guys that are popping up. Uh, Password Visions of Cultivar and Oxheart and ourselves and Hunky Dory and, and uh, foreign correspondents that are really kind of pushing the envelope on their own, which is what you want to see. And you say that this is the new American Creole city of the South. Yes. How does that play into this evolution, and does it take away from New Orleans? Well, I think when you talk about what creolization is, is when you're talking about cultures that are combining into one area um, for the first. And, and you had that in the, in the 1700s and 1500s in New Orleans, definitely. When we had the, <coughs> excuse me, you had the French and the Spanish, um, the Caribbean and, and, and African cultures all coming into one area, but now that hasn't happened. You know, that was that was then, and now this is now. Um, and you're talking about all the immigration into Houston from, you know, we're not a European-based city, so um, we have the Vietnamese, which is a large fishing population. Um, we have, and because of the Gulf Coast and the port city that we are, um, then you have uh, large Indian populations, Hispanic populations, um, Chinese, Thai, Middle Eastern. Um, it all comes from from oil, medical, fishing. And, and transport, and so you're seeing all these these uh, industries that are in our city now. That's bringing all of these cultures to since the sixties. So you started off as a sous chef and went into becoming a sommelier. How did that transition work, or why did you go into that path? I just wanted to see what everybody what you saw in the front of the house. I, I figured that my idea was that if I was going to own my own place, I needed to know both sides of the business. I needed to see not only what it felt like to cook for somebody, but to serve and to and to, to, to work with a guest to understand what their needs are. And I was interested in wine at that time. Um, I just, because I wanted to, went past my first level of the board of Master Sonniers. <clears throat> I was doing all the purchasing for food for the restaurant, so to me it was just a numbers thing. You know, I understand how to buy, I understand how to sell. Um, and where you, where you need to hit. And I was like, you know what? I want to see how this works. I want to know how to interact with the front of the house staff on a day-to-day basis instead of just like as they come get food. Right. You know? And how many years were you a Psalm? Two. What was the best bottle of wine that you sold? I mean, that's, that's I mean, for me, um, it was the one that, like, I found it. Like, it was where the previous buyer had bought it. Um, but it was 98 Soder Beacon Hill Pinot, and it was 2004 at that time, and it was perfect. I was like, this is why I drink wine. Mm. And so I just kind of pushed it onto everybody, you know. It was, it was just something that I came across that I truly love. But, you know, having done it, like, you get to taste everything. You know, here at Underbelly, it's, it's um, we don't have, we just have a beer and wine license so people can bring in wine uh, with just a corkage fee. And, bring in just amazing things and it's always they just always in a glass and it's, it's great and what brought you back to from front of house to the back of the house what was the impetus or what mark did you reach in that two year period You're like okay I think I got enough of this and now I want to come back <clears throat> well some friends that I had that uh, I went to culinary school with they were going to open a second restaurant and they said, you know do you want to come in and work at the kitchen you know kind of because you can see you, you now know front and back of the house you know how to run the kitchen. You know how to see what a guest sees and how to read what a guest wants before they know they want it. And, 
and so uh, I, I helped him open up Catalan, mm. and um, it was kind of a changing moment because it was like going from the kitchen and going to the front of the house, and at that point, you know, when I went to being a song, it was like, I don't know if anybody's ever going to take me seriously about getting back into the kitchen. <laughs> right. Because I just wanted to do this for a certain amount of time. Right. It's not Because when I did it, all, all my chef friends were like, what are you doing? <laughs> right. Why are you doing this? Are you why are you, are you quitting cooking? Like, what, what's the deal? It's like, no, I just wanted to see something different. You know, I wanted to understand this better. And um, so having the opportunity to get back in the kitchen, that's where I wanted to go. And did being a salon, I mean, outside of just having the overarching idea of how to run a restaurant, did that help influence your cooking, bring it to a new level? Do you, do you think about lessons learned there and the dishes Absolutely. that you're putting together? Absolutely. I think that, especially if you take wine dinners for the most part, um, when restaurants do wine dinners, like, the psalm sits down with the chef and they cook the food and then they, okay, well, this is how, this is going to pair with this. Like, I don't think that way. Um, I just taste the wines and then I go for the food then. Like, I don't have to do the food and then the wine. Like, it's, it's a little bit easier for me because now I understand stylistically what wines are going to be. I'm not going to throw something that's, it's, it's a progressionary state and understanding progression in the meal. Like, you can't come back from certain wines into other ones. You have to kind of go in that progression. So uh, it makes it a little bit easier. And, and I think it's very influential and very important part of, of the story of learning how to cook. I mean, food and water is just hand in hand. It's, it's a marriage, and, and you have to understand both. One of the other interesting things that you did on your educational journey is you went and cooked in a lot of the ethnic kitchens in the city. How did you go about stodging and when in your career did you do that um it was it was before this restaurant for sure um but it was at the other place at Catalan I kind of delved into understanding more and more of my own city and and that became from culinary tours where we were asked to you know work with the city uh, the convention bureau and was asked you know do we, we kind of came up with this culinary tour to to bring people in and show them our city through food. It turned out that it was mainly Houstonians that bought these tours. And so if I'm going to go from a tour of Vietnamese places, I better understand Vietnamese food. If I'm going to do Korean, I better understand Korean. And so I kind of just delved into those cultures to understand my city a little bit more. Uh, and then in between opening this, it was, you know, I go to a restaurant and I really fell in love with the food. And then I go back and I go back and then finally you have conversations and you have these walls and barriers that are broken down because they see you and they know you and they, you become their friend. And mm. then it's just like, hey, I want to I wanna see what you do. And, and that's the easiest way to understand a culture and people is through food. You know, and now it's, you know, whether it's, if I have a question about an Indian dish that I'm thinking of, I just call my, my family, the Patels upon the Sizzler, and I ask them to, and auntie and, and says, come on down, let me show you how to do this. And so or if I have questions about Szechuan, I go across the street to Mala and learn from them. If I have a question about Korea, I, I can go down the long point and talk to my folks over there. Or, you know, I call Saigon Pagalak and say, hey, traditionally in Vietnamese, you talk about this and this and this. Are, 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 is this what you're thinking? And they'll walk you through things. And it's just it's learning people, and it's learning people through food. Were there any really interesting or kind of hilarious yes chef moments when you're working in those kitchens where you just, you know, were kind of reverted back to early days of uh, being a, a, line, a line cook or a prep chef when you fell in? Yes and no. Um, I think when I went and worked at Asia Market, which was just, it was, you know, it's about 
10 square feet of kitchen <laughs> and, and four um, very small Thai ladies that are just kind of looking at me. They don't want to speak about English. And they're like, why are you here? Like, what are you doing? Why? What? You're a big man. Why are you standing here watching me? And they just didn't understand. <coughs> and so I was like, I'll just peel papaya for you. Like, whatever you want. And so I found myself peeling papaya and they, like, not even looking or caring who I was or... I just did all the prep work for them, and then like the next day I brought donuts, and oh, lights changed. Everything else, like it just all changed. And they're like, "Oh, here, let me show you this. This is how you do this. This is how you do this." So, um, donuts are the key. Is that the key to any culture? Is that like the barrier breaker? <laughs> I don't know. Sweet pastry type things. Sweet pastry. Yeah, well, will win people over every time. And then since then, I mean, Underbelly, when you open, just to go quickly through some of the awards, 2014 James Beard Southwest, 2014 Top 10 Best New Chef Food and Wine, National Eater Central 38, Best New Restaurant Esquire, Bon Appetit Best New Restaurant. How do you feel that, do you feel a lot of that came from really embracing Houston and what it has to offer and exemplifying and putting it on the map <coughs> on top of all of, all of your past experience? Uh, yeah, I, th- I mean, it's just... We showed our city and we showed our cultures really well and, and um, it's not saying that you come into Underbelly and you're going to get that tie. you're not you're going to get those flavors that make you feel that way um, you're going to and our goal has always been not to, um, to take from a culture but to learn from a culture and to teach from a culture uh, so let's take the goat and dumplings like that's not a traditional Korean dish I mean it's, it's based on a Korean dish called the hokey but it's not all the way the same. It's basically what I've always said. I, I just we just want to be the gateway drug to get you to go try out all these other places. It's like we want you to understand that flavor and then go venture out on your own to try it. One of the interesting things about your approach here is really going into the Gulf Coast produce. Yeah. How did you start to figure out what worked and have you found any things that you found here that you just can't for whatever your own life a life experience just can't transform it into something that uh, works yeah it's I mean we started farm, we started with our local farms we have extended growing seasons here mm-hmm. right so um, we get so much citrus during the winter you know December we start seeing strawberries um, and we have strawberries until May you know, into June. It's, it's crazy. So we have really long growing seasons that produce beautiful, beautiful food. And it was, why don't we just use this all the time? So for outside of, outside of lemons and limes, onions, celery, and carrots, and a few herbs, and garlic and shallots, everything else is from our local farms. We just won't use it if it's not. So, I mean, everyday farmers sleep here in a little bit. Um, you'll start to see the farmers are showing up because the market's over and I just tell them, you know, instead of taking it home, come by here, we'll take it, we'll figure, you know, we'll figure out what to do with it. Um, but the things that haven't really worked, um, parsnips don't really grow here well, mm. which is kind of weird. They come mm. out like really fibrous, just, mm. and I have one farmer that loves to grow them for me and every time he brings them in, it's, it's like boot leather tough. And right. So it's like parsnip stock. Right. Parsnip broth. Yeah. You can't even puree it. I mean, uh, it's can't even so like braise it. Oh, Nothing. It's it's so fine. Huh. It's like eating wood. Um, and artichokes. Oh, that's a shame. The artichokes. I have another farmer that will grow artichokes, and they're beautiful, but they, they just don't. They flower too much. You know, mm-hmm. they, they they bulb up. They don't get the bulb at the bottom. But, you know, you work with it. They, they're growing it. You buy it. You yeah. figure out what to do with it. 
And I mean, for people who can't and haven't been here, what I'm staring at is a beautiful charcuterie station and then a ton, a wall of pickled vegetables. Um, so how much of the, how much of it are you working and preserving throughout the year to work just back with the farmers? I know that you're really interested in making sure for f- the farmers have sustainable livelihoods. Yeah. So how much of this are you pickling for the rest of the restaurant and how much else are you pickling to make sure that they have a steady income and know that they can come to you? And- I, I think it's both. Mm. I think it's really both. Um, we have now, so we probably deal with 18 to 20 different small farmers. And I was, well, maybe probably 16, 16 to 18. Um, and there's four that we buy 100% of their product. Um, it's just, I, I, because they're not that big, right? You just kind of swallow them up. And it's, or for other reasons, what have you, some do a CSA, and then I'm just like, I'll take everything else you don't throw. Or else, I don't want them to drive around trying to sell $20 worth of stuff. Right. Showing up at a restaurant's back door and being like, hey, I have 10 pounds of peppers and 100, you know, 50 pounds of this and 12 pounds of that and people just kind of cheer. I just want 5 pounds of this and 3 pounds of this and 8 pounds of this I'll say 2 years of corn yeah it's too much for these guys right they don't make any money then so um, because of that we just tell them you know what just we'll buy everything <clears throat> I don't really care we'll, we'll figure it out mm. and so that's where a lot of the pickling comes in we do want to do preserving for ourselves and for our guests um, but for the most part like, we're just doing it to, to support a community support a family and a lifestyle um, but in return, you get really cool product. Um, What's like one of the cooler products you've gotten that you might not have otherwise sought out? 100% um, our grits. Mm. It was one of these things that um, we were doing this with one of our farmers. He said, well, what would you really like to see? I want to thank you for, for helping me. And I was like, well, we grow corn really well around here. But can you grow a certain variety of corn that we can dry and grind? For grits, we said, yeah, we can do that. I'll even grind it for you. I was like, all right. So we chose on Hickory King. It was a variety of, of grit that, or corn that really grows well in this region. Um, so for the past two years, it's been just, here's your grits. And you get them once a year. And it's you vacuum seal them and put them in the cooler and they're great to go. So it's just when it comes in, it's like five, 600 pounds of grits. So it's, it's actually enough grit for the entire year. So, but it's to have something like that. You know that we don't have to go to the Carolinas for, that we don't have to go northern for, that we can have grits that are that are grown 25 minutes from here for us. And it's a new stream of revenue for the oh, farmer as well. Yeah. What's and the name of the farm? It's the most expensive grit ever, but it's so much worth it. What's the name of the farm? Um, Circle S. Circle S. Well, we're going to take a quick musical break. We're going to come back and talk about sustainability and some of your many many side projects. <laughs> we'll be right back right here on Snacking Tunes.
What's really interesting about Underbelly is the whole animal charcuterie yes. station and your promotion of bycatch in the Gulf. So let's start with the whole animal uh, butchery program. It okay. came from you hearing or asking a butcher, where does the rest of this go, and them not, <laughs> them not knowing and that bumming you out? Yeah, it pissed me off, actually. Um, well, it was one of our meat purveyors, and, and the idea when I, before we opened this was, um, you know, where at Catalan before I was able to break down pigs and, and goats and lamb and, and small animals, you know, and so I wanted to know, like, where where is this going? And uh, I was like, so I want to buy a cow. I want to buy an entire steer. And they're like, well, I can get you ribeyes and strips and tenders and this and that and this and that. And I'm like, but what about all of the other stuff? Where's that go? He's like, I don't know. Does that matter? I was like, I kind of dropped a couple of F-bombs. I was like, you know what? It does matter. Thanks, buddy. We're done. And um, so that started the venture. And so when we built this, I wanted to make sure that um, when we built Underbelly, that it had enough room and the butcher shop was big enough that it could accommodate a steer. Um, and so we get a steer uh, every other week, 900-pound steer every other week, and it gets us through for two weeks. And how do you balance the primal cuts that are going to go through a lot faster in the earlier in the two weeks and then what you have at the end of the, the two weeks or how do you portion them out so everyone can have an opportunity throughout the time? I mean, when you talk about it, it's like, so Saturday night, right? It's, it'll be it'll be ribeye night, you know, tonight. Next Saturday, not gonna be, you know, it's, you're finding things like, there's so much flat meat, like say, 
flat irons and fajita meat and tri-tips and sirloins and those are all the things that we'll use for our butcher's cut for a grilled piece of meat. Then it's pot roast and then it's um, grind and so you short rib. So there's just you teaching the cooks how to utilize all the parts and how to, how to make sure that each part is really delicious. I mean, that's, that's a thing. Like, my butcher is amazing. So um, he also does all the charcuterie work. So it's one of these things that he's just super skilled and like he just you walk in and there's all these it's cut and backed up. Comes <clears throat> back and see look goose necks, sirloins, tri tips, and so you have this like little butcher shop inside of a butcher shop for, for the cooks to work with. Do you say goosenecks? Yeah. Is that part of the cow or is that actual goosenecks? Yeah, yeah, that's part of the Where is that on the cow? The oh part of the head. Education also goes both ways. So you can break down a whole animal, but you also have to convince your customers to eat them. Yeah. So how have you gone about educating them? Or has it been like, I'm the chef, eat, eat this, trust me? No, 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 no. We work with the staff really hard because we change the menu every day. That's part of it. So at um, 1 o'clock, 1 to 2 o'clock, all the cooks and sous chefs, they all sit down and talk about menu, talk about food, talk about product that's coming in, where we need to go. Because like, say last night, we ate six, three things. We have 20 things on the menu. We may not have 20 things by the end of the night. Just because, like I said, like, there's only so many parts of an animal. When you talk about a ribeye, there's 24, traditionally on a good size, like a 900-pound steer. That's going to be gone by 9 o'clock, and so we'll move into something else. And it's just changing, but it's having the staff and educating your staff enough to be able to educate the customers. And in the way, I'm sorry, how do you go about sourcing your cattle, and where did you get it from, and how do you work back with the farmers in that way? When we, were, when we first started, we were working with uh, Akaushi producer, which is a style of Wagyu, um, and then we went into a traditional Wagyu producer, but those steers, like you were you're talking about small farmers, right? Um, it takes a long time to raise a steer to be able to be processed, so farmers, yeah, we can do this, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> wait a minute, we're out of cattle, you know, we're going to run low on cattle, it's like... All right, take a break. Get yourself back up. So we, we, we went to another small farm that actually has a production level that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, um, 44 farms, and they've just done a fantastic job. It's an Angus an Angus cattle, and it's, you know, they deliver. They, they get it here when I need it. I don't have to worry about it. You know, it's, uh, they've done a really good job. And has this spread to the larger Houston restaurant scene? Has what you've done here been taken in by other restaurants, or is it no. slow to adapt? No. Uh, I mean, as far as the farming goes, yeah, everybody wants to use a lot of local produce. That's great. Uh, nobody else is breaking down steers. Um, some will break down pigs, but not a lot. You know, it's just people want cuts, but we want to, and it's not to say that hey, we're badasses or anything like that. It's just because at this restaurant specifically, um, I wanted to utilize everything that we possibly could. And, and that's where, when the butcher shop came in, that's when the charcuterie product came in. And once you start being able to do um, hanging meats and curing meats, well then, all of a sudden you can start asking pig farmers, hey man, can you just do large black hogs um, and finish them on Texas peanuts for three months? And they're like, um, that's going to be really expensive, but yeah, let's do it. Like, well, you know, in the final end product, it's worth it. You know, so if I'm going to let a ham hang for 30 months, at the end, if you don't start with the best product, at the end, it's still just a mediocre ham that's been hanging for 30 months. Right. So. And the other side of what you serve is bycatch from the Gulf Coast. Yeah. And how, and again, um, finding bycatch, which people might consider trash fish or just throw away or ugly. 
What are some of the fishes that you have found to be just as good, if not better, than your salmons, tunas, etc.? Well, that that that's changed over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, when we first opened, you could use as much bycatch as you wanted to, and it's because of commercial fishing laws or commercial fishing versus effort has changed and has gotten better. And so fishermen are tra- traditionally just going more and more for snapper because then they can send it everywhere in the country. Or the sustainability projects have worked really well for our fishing community. And so you're starting to see more and more snapper very territorial. So when you catch snapper, you only catch snapper. There isn't a bycatch. And so now fishermen are able to go out and fish for these products and be able to ship them everywhere. And so they're getting paid for that. When bycatch, they weren't really getting paid as much for. So they don't target that. Like they don't go out. You'll see it when you get uh, long line boats. The only certain times, like grouper boats, you'll see more of that kind of stuff on. Um, but it, it, it's kind of dwindling down now. You don't see what you used to see. You don't see the trigger fishes and the, the long tail bass and, um, and just even beeliners and vermilions. You don't you'll see it as much anymore. Um, because the sustainable programs, yeah, sustainability programs have worked. Yeah. It's interesting. I would never have thought that like the sustainability programs would do so well. That would actually not make well, a market or not drive them to, to catch these other fish. Before you were looking at snapper seasons when it was like the, ten or, the first 10 or 15 days of the month until they caught a poundage limit. Now they have poundage limits for boats so they can just go out at any time to catch. So it's really worked to the benefit for the, for the ecosystem. But you're, you're, as a consumer, I've trained so many people, or as a, as a, like a, as a chef, I've trained all our consumers to look for all these different types of fish. <laughs> now you see like two. You know, right. You don't see like hey, I've got 100 pounds of this. Like, it's rare, and when it happens, I'm taking it, you know, and I'm going to use it, but it doesn't happen as much anymore. And unlike your pig farmers where you can get, like, please raise a pig in this way, for fishermen, it's, it's not the same. <laughs> I need you to go out and catch these. Like, uh, uh. <laughs> well, I don't know if you know how big the gulf is, yeah. but that doesn't happen. So um, when you start to see tile boats and things like that that are more deep water, you'll start to see onagas and green snappers like that. But for the most part... Um, it's rare and few and far between at this point, which is good. It's good and bad, but it's good. Right. It's bad for education, but it's good because it means it shows that sustainability yeah. programs can actually work. Yeah. I mean, I get pictures from a guy on a boat. He's like, what is this? And it's like, uh, that's this. And like, don't eat that. <laughs> you know, or whatever. You, know, you, you learn. So from your um, in-house butchery program, your bycatch and sustainability programs and the farmers, what are some of the larger lessons you've learned about Houston produce and, and Houston uh, ingredients that you think sets us apart from the rest of the, the country? I just think we have such a beautiful, beautiful like ability to get product. You know, it's like when you talk about the long seasons, but then I also have to talk about like not just the preserving the pickling, but now we work with Rice University on a lot of our products. We actually have a couple of classes that work on vinegar projects for us. Right. Because that's the next step. The shrubs. The shrubs, yeah. And so, and again, that also goes back into you giving another stream of revenue for the farmers as well. Yeah. So how does that how does that tie in? Maybe explain. It's, it's not an immediate jump in logic. No, it's not. <laughs> um, it was, you know, when I had a farmer that came to me and said, I have um, an amazing citrus season coming on. I need some help. And so... Um, I was starting to call the bars around here. I was like, hey, I know you, I know you, bastards use limes or lemons, and I know you use oranges. So uh, come on, let's, I, need you, I need your help. And so for the first couple of weeks, like all these bartenders were like, yeah, they show up here every mor- uh, on Tuesday mornings and pick up their you know, two cases of satsumas and a case of navel oranges and a case of lemon, of Meyer lemons. And then all of a sudden they dropped off. I'm like, what are you guys doing? 
like, I need your help here. And they're like, well, we already made shrubs out of most of it, so I don't really know. And I was like, what are you talking about? Hmm. And so then I started looking into shrubs, and it was like, well, you're basically just muddling sugar and citrus zest, and that's your shrub. But, well, now, like, what the actual colonial shrub is, like, you, you're going to muddle, you're going to uh, make an oleosaccharide, and then you're going to kind of ferment in sugar the product, and then you add vinegar to that, and then you can add that to a beverage. <clears throat> so we started working on that, and I started looking around the dining room, we did all these different shrubs because we were seasoning it with different flavors. We bottled it for lunches. I said, man, I hope we're doing this right. Because I would notice that this would become the non-alcoholic beverage for pregnant women. Hmm. And it terrified me the first time I saw it. I was like, and we were working with a chemistry producer or a chemistry professor at Rice who would go in and talk to her class and she would come in and teach my cooks. Um, I was like, can we do something? Can, I, can you guys test this for me? And then all of a sudden this became a class where um, they would take the shrub and test everything and make sure and kind of go through the phases of shrub making. And so now it's gone through shrub making, and now they're working. There's another class working on vinegars with us. So I wanted to produce the vinegar for the shrub if we were going to make the shrub. So. And how does this feedback into farmers? Is it just a place for their produce I can to buy live? A lot more. Mm. If we can make vinegars and all that, I can keep buying from them. Like instead of, hey, I can only take 100 pounds of satsumas. Hey, I'll take 300 pounds of satsumas. And so that gives them a little bit better reach. And for the, what is, have there been any surprises or any other discoveries from working with the Rice University students? Or since they come from like a non-culinary background, have they brought you something that you wouldn't have otherwise thought of or, or found? I, I mean, they talk to me all the time, and I don't know what the hell they're saying. <laughs> they, I, I have no idea. Like they, I go in and listen to their their lectures, and I'm like, what? Like, what does this even mean? And it's like they. It goes so far past me. So now that we've hired, we've actually hired one of their students to come in and work with us. So Tarek is now on staff, and he just comes in and he tests our vinegars, and he does a lot of work with us. So it's good. We're going to take a quick musical break, <laughs> and we're going to come back with even more side projects with Chef Chris Shepard of Underbelly.
love handling paperwork after a long day in the kitchen? Of course you don't. That's what Shoebox is for. Created by two restaurant veterans, Shoebox is changing the way chefs and bookkeepers manage invoices. Here's Tony Iazzi and Xavier Mariez Carena on how it works. Take a stack of invoices um, and you can run them through a scanner that you already have on your printer or take a picture through your phone. You send it into your Shoebox account and the next day uh, by 9 a.m., not only do you have uh, access to that original invoice through the platform. As but an it, image. Or as an image, exactly. But it also populates the different areas of your operation that are important to your financial structure. So that means it'll dump into QuickBooks. It'll dump into your accounting platform. Shoebox works with any accounting software. By digitizing receipts and invoices, Shoebox helps you understand your purchases and allows you to make quick decisions. Chefs will be in like kind of a budgetary situation with like, oh, you spent too much money in February. Why? Like, well, okay, it's July. Um, what do you want me to do about it now? So it's an incredibly reactive system, and we're just bringing them up to date so that they can make better purchasing decisions the next day instead of the next month. Save time on data entry and get back to the business you love. For more information, visit shoebox.com. That's C-H-O-U-X-B-O-X dot com. So you're a big sports fan. I am. You have two kiosks in the Energy Stadium. How do you take the level of cooking for underbelly and scale it down so it can be done for the masses but still re- retain the same level of quality and approach? Yeah, well, when I was tailgating, we was, I was tailgating for the Texans games every, every Sunday. Um, on your own or you would, own, okay. And then I'd go in the stadium and like, I wouldn't eat. And I was like, man, I just wish I had some of the food that I had out there because I'm cooking for everybody else. Now I'm hungry. I wish I could have that kind of same style of food. And what would you cook on your own? Just whatever. I mean, we would always do something that was kind of based on um, what whoever we were playing. Oh, so you would change the cuisine based on what yeah. city they're from? Yeah. Oh, man. A good, what's a good example? Uh, like we did Primanti Brothers sandwiches when we played Pittsburgh. Like that, that good was, on you. You know, it's, it's the no-brain. It's Jacksonville's a hard one. Like, what do you do? There's not a lot of, like, whatever. No offense to people in Jacksonville. Um, but... I just wanted, so I kind of worked my way. I found the right channels to be able to be able to put food in there. And then uh, the first year, like, they finally said yes. And we built two underbelly kiosks, one on each side of the club level, and uh, which actually ended my tailgating. You know, now I'm working. Right. But, you know. But free tickets. <laughs> you got to be careful what you ask for. Yeah. Um, and so we, we, I started off, we were doing pork belly steam buns, and we are doing goat dumplings, and we are doing, you know, like the three dishes, and like, we're going to have fun with this, we're going to make it, uh, and it's like, that's not really what people want. Mm. They want something comforting and easy, and something delicious, and that's handheld, and, and you know, it's third quarter, they want to be able to sit down, jam it in their face, call it a day. Um, so we, we finally, after four years, um, we always do one we do two things now. We do, uh, and I work with 44 Farms, my, my cattle producer. They do all our meats for us at the stadium. We do a, uh, a jalapeno cheddar dog, bacon jam, and pickled red onions on it with tater tot casserole. I can't, it's, it's so much of that. <laughs> really so much of that now. And then um, this we, then we always change the other sandwich. And this year we're doing kind of like a, a Korean braised beef sandwich. Mm. Um, and it, yeah, it's delicious. And so it's our food. It's staying true to who we are, um, but it's it's set for, you know, forty thousand people or seventy thousand people are in the stadium every Sunday. But 
5,000 on each side. So. And was that a tough decision you had to face internally to step down the food, or did it just become a very natural decision? Or just No, you have to do stuff like that. You know, you have, if, if you want to put your brand into something like that, you have to understand that um, for the masses, if they want that dining experience, they're going to come here. You know, I have yet to have somebody come in here and, you know, it's like, hey, I, I ate at your stand at the stadium. Where's that big cheddar? I'm like, no, I'm sorry, that doesn't happen here. Uh, but then when you have people that come up, they're like, I wasn't going to come to the game today, but I really wanted to just eat your sandwich. So I'm here. And it's like, that's awesome. Thank that's you. amazing. Yeah. When you hear that all the time, like, people really want that. Like, then you know you're doing it right. And people, you know, you walk up and see the lines and people are like, excited. And, like, it's, it's nice to have that. One of the other projects you work on is a Southern Smoke fundraiser, yeah. which was started because one of your psalms um, was diagnosed with MS. Yeah. What is the history of that, and how has it evolved? I mean, you have some of the best chefs in the region coming and cooking for it. Yeah. Um, well, Antonio, we were we worked together at Catalan. Uh, he, he works at a wine shop around the corner, and he was helping me on Sundays uh, do this this dinner series to raise money for um, scholarships. And he came to me and was like. We had done them all. It was like December, uh, sitting there doing menus at the end of the night. And he came up. I was like, hey, man, what's going on? You know, I knew he was training for the MS-150, which is a bike ride that goes from here to Austin that raises a lot of money. And he was like, you know, um, kind of quit biking a little bit because I got diagnosed with MS. And I was like, what? And he said, yeah. I was like, all right. Um, so what do we do? And he's like, well, I, he was like, I was hoping that maybe you could do another one of those dinners and we could put like five or ten thousand dollars to the ms society and i was like nah no nah, that's that's too small we're going to do something fun and so it ended up being southern smoke um which is a one-day event and it always happens on bye week um hmm. for the texans because it's easier um but the first year you know the idea was like oh i'll call aaron franklin and he and I can do Texas-style cuisine. He can do barbecue, and I'll do um, food, like Texas cuisine. And maybe Sean Brock will come, and, and Rodney Scott. And Rodney can do whole hog, and Sean can do his food. And then it turned into a festival. It's t- it turned in from like doing a dinner for 100 to doing 800 outside in the parking lot. So Because we went and talked to the mayor's department of special events. And Susan Christensen was like, no, we're going to shut down the streets. We're going to do this. I'm going to give you all my vendors. And it turned into this big ordeal in the first year we raised $184,000 and so we did it again this past year same kind of setup set all the street around us down put a stage in had a bunch of live music rebirth brass band and full family revival come in and um, you know chefs are so giving and and when it comes to something that means something to one of their friends in a heartbeat it's a yes um, and so we had Tandy Wilson from City House come in, Ashley Christensen from Raleigh, um, uh, Aaron Franklin came again, Rodney Scott again, um, and then uh, Steven Shuzinski from Koshon and Ryan Pruitt from Pesh. And then we have the Houston Barbecue Collective, which is uh, our friends, which is Passive Provisions, Seth and Terrence, and then Justin Yu and Ryan Perra from Poltavari. And Justin, of course, is from Oxart. So we put barbecue trailers all over outside, do a big live fire event. This year we raised $280,000. Amazing. Congratulations. So, thank you. Um, and so next year, who knows? You know, we'll invite some new kids. You know, everybody that comes is like, hey, can you do the Can I come again next year? You know, it's like, <laughs> so eventually, you know, there's no real Houston food festival. 
and I don't say I ever want this to be that, but I think this gives people a lot of exposure to the chefs and people from around the country that they haven't ever met. And so, and, you know, everybody stands in line and they get to come up and they get to stand and talk to Ryan or they get to stand and talk to Aaron and, and so or Ashley, and it's, it's really special. It's a special day. One of the biggest projects you have coming up that is the most interesting is One Fifth. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard of something that is this long but also this temporary. Yeah. So what is the con- the core concept behind it, and how did this project come about? Uh, well, the restaurant down the street was Mark's, um, which we talked about earlier. And it is an iconic restaurant. And it was 19 years. The chef did a great job. Um, just, you know, he, he told me, like, 19 years, he had two one-week vacations. I was like, man, it's time. You know, you own the land, sell it, get done. Um, and so the people that bought the land, they... They had us come look at it, the, the developers. <clears throat> I went and looked at it. I was like, you know, this would be good for, you know, restaurants are generally 15, 10 to 20-year leases. I said, they only wanted to do a two-year lease because they had ideas for all the area around it. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do that, but five years. And my business partner looked at me. He's like, what? And I was like, five years. We change the concept every year. And he was like, no. <laughs> 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 the developers got little stars in their eyes. And I was like... All right, I'm going to work. I have stuff to do. You guys hash it out. We'll talk later. And um, my business partner, of course, like always came up like an hour later and was like, it would work. I don't know how, but it'll work. And I was like, well, let's open up. We'll close it in August. We'll reconcept it, open back up in September, and then go to the following year. So one-fifth got created on an idea. Actually, after we talked to uh, my girlfriend, I was like, you need to talk to her first. And I'm going to leave, and you guys can discuss it. And I came back. She was like, "It's brilliant." I was like, "All right, that's fine." <laughs> um, so as long as you know, I'm not going to be around for five years. It's like it's going to be, you know, this is how it's going to work. You so gave me a pass. You did. You, you said it was okay. Five year pass. I'm not sure how that worked out. Um, but it, we start in Jan- middle of January. One fifth steak opens up. Um, we'll go until August first or the last day of July, um, and then shut it down. And then we reconcept it. We new uniforms, new interior, new wine list, new menus. We open up September with Romance Languages, so focus on French, Italian, and Spanish. Then we go until August, and we shut it down again, reconcept it, new uniforms, new design, everything, uh, and then open up September with uh, one-fifth fish. I focus on seafood. And then, same thing, but the last two, I don't know yet. Because three years ago... three years. Yeah, three years ago, I didn't think I would ever open a steakhouse or a place focused on French, Italian, and Spanish. Like, I didn't know I would ever want that. So it kind of limits myself. You know, it kind of opens up... I shouldn't say limits. It opens up the ideas to what can be. And given your philosophy on whole animal butchery, what is your approach to a steakhouse going to be that is so big on very specific cuts? When I say steakhouse, it's more of a meat emporium, I think. Um, Not so much... Steakhouses are comforting, right? To me, I've, I've never had gone into them up until this year, up until like the last six months. And now I've ventured into quite a few of them. And to me, it's a level of comfort that you walk into. You know, it's like there's going to be a wedge. There's going to be a, maybe, some, maybe some cold seafood. And then there's going to be a ribeye strip or a, or a bone-in filet. And now I'm bored, right? But that's then all the other dishes are kind of just there. No, it's, it's not so much. It's do you want a 16 ounce ribeye or do you want an 18 ounce ribeye? Right. Or do you want the 24 ounce bone in ribeye? It's, it's like, and then all the sides are the same. It's like cream spinach and some, some hash brown potatoes. And, but how do you elevate those things and change them? 
you know, how do you, that's the comfort zone. One-fifth will be the uncomfort zone, right? It's going to push you around a little bit, just as underbelly does, and then make you feel comforting and comfortable at the end. What's a good example of the uncomfort zone, a, a dish uh, example? Uh, like, I am going to focus a ton on, to, like, braised lamb necks. Love necks. Yes. Turkey, turkey necks are the staple for my home and Thanksgiving. It's absolutely delicious, but... So, we, like, I've never got to work with olives, right, here. I should say at Underbelly, because there's not a lot of local olives and things like that. I, I focus on that because then it brings people in that are around here that understand, like, what's going to be different with these things. Like, the products that I haven't been able to touch, caviar, um, shellfish from around the world, like, delicious things. Um, but I'm working on a dish with, like, red wine braised lamb necks with tomatoes, whole shallots, and, and olives. And it's just in a cast iron. Delicious. Just like when we opened here and we did the goat and dumplings, I didn't, think, I didn't know if that would work. This is something that I think is going to be, you know, wood roasted because luckily I'm going into a restaurant that has a, a, a wood oven, like a deck, a wood burning deck oven, and so I get to work with a lot of those things. It's like how do you elevate all these sides and steaks and you know, will we do a fillet? No. Hmm. Like I just that was what started it for me. It was like there's two fillets on a cow. That's 14 pounds of 900 pounds, and that was what the question was. Where does the rest of the 900 pounds go? You know, so. And will any of those dishes on there, when the concept retires, make its way to Underbelly, or once it's gone, no, it's gone? No, probably not. Once it's gone, it's gone. Um, this is a totally different thing. This is a way that I can run, I can open five different restaurants in five years and figure out what I want to do when I, get, when I grow up. Because <laughs> right? I'm getting older, I need to figure out what the next concept is, and so I wanted to do that. Instead of just like practically putting everything on paper, we get to actually do it and figure out what's next. Interesting. And, and so that's the motivation. I mean, most people, when they open something, they don't know that it's going to close. I mean, the thing that keeps you going every day is that the possibility that this will go forever. So where do you find the driver? Where do you think the drive will come from knowing that this is going to end in five years or even less in every nine months? <laughs> first one, first one, seven months, which is crazy. Um, you know, I think people, you don't have that time. You don't have time to wait. You know, I'll give it six months and then I'll go. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't, it may not be there. You know, if you don't go now, it's it's just going to, it, it's, I get to flush out so many ideas so quickly. And that's what's exciting to me. Because someone asked me the other day, it's like, What's inside your brain? I was like, you know when you're scrambling eggs and it's just kind of that globby mess going around? That's what my brain looks like right now. So it's just so many things going on in there. I just want to put it on paper. I want to put it on a plate and see what happens. And hopefully people like that. And will there be reservation yeah. system, like talk, or will or how will people be able to come and uh, enjoy it? We're going with Resi. Okay. Um, a reservation source that I, I used when I was in New York last, and I really like it. It's starting to come into Houston, so... Uh, the last thing I want to cover with you is bourbon <laughs> yeah. and your absolute devotion and love for it. Yeah. Do you remember the first bourbon that changed your life or opened up your eyes? You know, I, I didn't used to like bourbon. I mean, it was probably ten, eight, eight to ten years ago. Like, I was drinking, like, like Añejo tequilas and, and a lot of tequila. And I, I liked that caramelness of the age on a tequila, and I found that I liked that in bourbon. And um, I just started trying a lot of different bourbons, and now it's gotten over. It's it's gotten a little ridiculous, you know, because it's not like I like to drink a lot of it. I like to taste a lot of it. Mm. I like to know flavor profiles and find which ones I like. Uh, 
you know, I found that I really enjoy weeded bourbons. I enjoy the higher proof bourbons. And now my fascination is <coughs> finding the old dusties and, and, and finding like stuff from the, the 60s and the 70s and 80s. And so this is really just a transfer of your psalm days now into bourbon. Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, how big is your collection now? Uh, yeah. Embarrassingly? Okay, <laughs> fair enough. It's like when you walk in the house, people are like, oh my god, man, what are you doing? And it's... it's um, I just have a lot of gifts laying around, you know, which is good too. I was going to say it's probably the best thing to be known for that, and people just send you the rare bottles. Yeah, and it's great. You know, people. It's always, a self fulfilling prof- prophecy. Well, and then the people go see Antonio at, at his, his store. They're like, I want to get Chris a bottle of bourbon. He's just like, okay, he doesn't have this one yet, you know, or, or what have you. It's, it's people know, like, they'll just show up and bring nice little gifts. But it's more about the hunt for me. I love the hunt. Mm. I love the searching for things, driving down. You know, driving to wherever and then just hitting all the back roads and like oh, your friend's really patient with me and I'm like, hey, I'm going to stop over here. She's like, yeah, I know. Okay. She knows that like if it's a two-hour road trip, it's going to be like three and a half because I'm going to stop on all the little dirt roads. And what's the best find that you've had recently or ever? You know, um, I found that I really started to like like the old granddads from the late 60s and uh, old Fitzgeralds from the 80s. Uh, those are probably my favorites. And, um, man, it's just, it's, it's really tasty. One last question. Yeah. What is the most misunderstood thing about the Houston food scene, and what do you hope to correct it? I don't. I think people still have the generalization that, and I'm getting ready to open one, um, that Houston is a bunch of steakhouses, and, and uh, it's barbecue and, and Tex-Mex. And there's a lot of great Tex-Mex there is. And, and there's just now starting to be really good barbecue. Before that, it was, it was, um, there wasn't a lot of barbecue, um, but I think people don't understand that there is one of the, the second largest Vietnamese population in the country. So the Vietnamese food here is amazing, um, and what people are doing is is starting to come into their own. And so you're seeing all these places like that. You go down Chinatown; it's the largest contiguous Asia town in the country, and so it's six and a half to seven miles long, and it's sprawling everywhere. And so it's just getting bigger and bigger and better and better. Um, and so people are are they need to learn that this is the diversity of this city. That's what this city is. It's diverse. And just go outside of the loop. Or go outside of, like, don't just look at all of, like, restaurants like Underbelly. Come in and check it out. But then also go in and check out other places. Go in and check out Passive Provisions. Go in and check out Cafe Annie. Go in and go to Mala Szechuan across the street. Go, you know, go to Crawfish and Noodles when it's crawfish season. Go try crawfish. Don't be afraid. You know, that's... Exploring the city a little bit more than what just meets the eye. Go in and talk to a service person at the restaurant. Go talk to your bartender. See like, where would you go eat Vietnamese? Mm. Ask those questions. Don't just say what's the best this in the city. Go and look for other things. Well, Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Okay. Where can people find the restaurant, make reservations, get a hold of you, come sip some bourbon? <laughs> Underbellyhouston.com and then onefifthhouston.com. Um, I'm always around. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you for tuning into the special episode of Snacky Tunes with Chef Chris, Chef Chris Shepard of Underbelly. We'll be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.